0: How do you make that promise agnostic to political parties, the promise of becoming net zero by any date? The problem is the efficient thing is the unfair thing. If you think about the carbon that's already out there in the atmosphere, a lot of that carbon has been put out by the developed countries and they still continue to put out more carbon. For example, the United States produces 16 tons of carbon per person per year. Tanzania produces 0.2 tons of carbon per person per year. I think what it makes sense is for payments to take place from the high emitters to the low emitters. The beauty of this is Tanzania now has an incentive not to consume more carbon because if it increases its consumption of carbon, it reduces the amount it gets from the fund.
1: Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host, Vedea Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have on our show, Dr. Raghuram Rajan, Catherine Dusak Miller, Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at Chicago Booth School. He was the 23rd Governor of the Reserve Bank of India, and he also served as a Chief Economist at the IMF. Dr. Rajan joins us from Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Raghu.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: In an op-ed published in 1970 in the New York Times by Dr. Milton Friedman, who went on to win the Nobel Prize in Economics, he wrote, and I quote, businesses that take seriously its responsibilities for providing employment, eliminating discrimination, avoiding pollution, and whatever else may be the catchword of the contemporary crop of reformers. He compared it to an un- adulterated socialism. He went on to say, and I paraphrase now, that the goal of the business should be to make as much money as possible while conforming to the social norms. And that is about 50 years ago now we've come a full about turn, we've done a complete about turn.
0: What has changed? To some extent, what has changed is that businesses have come under a lot more social pressure than at that time. It is certainly true that Milton Friedman said the business of business is making money. I think the second part of what he said is very important, that he said within the constraints of the laws and the norms of society, By norms, he basically meant reasonable business practice. Now, what he was very worried about, which is something we should worry about today also, it is important that we remember the basic business of business is making goods and services that you customers want to buy at a reasonable price. That's what a business is about. Now, everything else is over and above it. Obviously, you have to respect the laws. Obviously, you have to do it in the most environmentally reasonable way possible. Now, what he was trying to say, which I think is being debated today, is that you don't have to do anything more than what the laws say. And I think today, because of the difficulty that we have in passing the laws that matter, because of the differences in opinion within society... There's a lot of public pressure being applied on corporations, for example, to be better at emissions than what the law requires. And this is where Milton Friedman would disagree. He would say democracy means you pass the laws. If you can't pass the laws, then trying to enforce them on a company without them being passed by the democratic majority is not, you know, consistent with a democracy. It is some private interest group which says that this is more important and I will try and enforce it by picketing the corporation, etc. You could argue about that for a long time. But basically, I think his point was certainly if you make a good product, you will make money. Unfortunately, he wasn't particularly political. And by saying the business was to make money, the vision that comes in people's minds is of, people rampage of companies rampaging through society, selling shoddy products in order to make the most profit possible. He would say that's a very short-term profit, and you can't sustain that. You would have to be much more thoughtful about selling a good product.
1: It gives you a vision of avarice. Exactly. So we are moving from avarice to empathy.
0: Not necessarily. I think that's what corporations would like us to believe, and there are a few corporations that genuinely care more broadly but for a lot of corporations it is how do i maximize the bottom line but address these other constraints that are imposed on me i have to look as if i care about the environment let me give you an example so we did this uh, study on uh, corporate objectives whole bunch of corporate objectives say, we care about the environment. One of the interesting thing is, when do corporations assume that uh, objective of caring about the environment? Disproportionately, when they find fined by the EPA for violations. In other words, when you are caught out in order to signal that you've turned, you've actually seen the light and you're gonna turn over a new leaf, you espouse that as a corporate objective. So I don't want your listeners to be overly cynical about this. But I would say when corporation expresses a whole degree of sensitivity, for the public good. I mean, a fair amount of it, which is what Milton Friedman said is hogwash. Now, what I would think is important is not to rely on the corporation to do good on its own, but to make it easier for it to do good by passing the appropriate laws that you think it ought to obey. In other words, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God, the things that are gods. I mean, keep separate the objective of making money of the commercial proposition, which is what the corporation is about, from the social good, which is what the government is about, but try and ensure the corporation comes under significant sort of uh, rules and regulations, of course, in a reasonable quantity that makes it do the right thing.
1: So I understand your point about democracy and if we live in a democratic world or country, the laws will be passed. But you are a researcher at Chicago Booth, which is primarily free market, as libertarian as possible. And you are saying that laws must be enacted to make corporations perform?
0: No, absolutely. So first, a university is a big tent. I don't go to my office every day and genuflect at the altar of Milton Friedman. Any academic god is a contradiction in terms. Your whole objective is to challenge the wisdom. All I'm saying is in the current environment where corporations have 15 different objectives and claim to be adhering to all of them, where the business roundtable says we care about all our stakeholders, we're going to do everything good for all of them. Well, you're sort of in a situation where they say they do all this, but Obviously corporations have to choose. They have to choose occasionally between, you know, their shareholder and their worker, they have to choose between the environment and you know, providing jobs. I mean there are lots of choices they have to make and being vacuous about it and saying we care about everybody is not helpful in letting you understand what they really care about. And I think it it sort of is can hide a lot of hypocrisy. I think what is important really is, you know, for corporations to have a set of clear guidelines which they have to follow. I mean, I'm not saying that they're all untrustworthy. I'm not saying there aren't great CEOs who are great human beings also. What I am saying is don't rely on that. Don't rely on self-regulation by corporations. And I don't also want us to overregulate the corporation. But if you want them to do something, for example, reduce emissions, make that a law. Let them follow the law. And that is the way, I mean, whenever we rely on the good intentions of corporations, I mean, remember a time when all these social platforms were really idealistic and we thought do no evil, which was, I think, Google's motto, reflected the true instincts. And now today, of course, many of these social platforms, are public sees them with a much, much darker view than it used to see them. And in part, it is because we relied on them to regulate themselves, And we said, you're going to figure out what content to allow, what sort of, and see what happened. And the net effect is now we've got so much disagreement about, you know, say a platform like Twitter, which is in the news today. Should Twitter allow free debate or should it censor debate more? And you've got all sorts of sides being formed on this. And I think this is where sensibly society will sit down and say, here are some rules which you have to follow. And hopefully it's a light set of rules, it's a clear set of rules, but leaving it totally unregulated is I think leaving it to the good intentions of corporations, which I think is very weak.
1: But the truth of the matter is, even if you have regulations, only if it increases profit or some other benefit for the company, till then they are not going to do it, right?
0: Absolutely, but that again, I want to distinguish between long-term value maximization and short-term ripping people off. If I rip you off in the short-term, yes, I can make more money off you, but then you never come back to deal with me again. I think it's a mistaken to believe every corporation is short-term and wants to rip you off. You know, typically the best managed corporations think about the long-term, think about how they can make money by producing the best product for their customers uh, or the most sort of best product for the money that the customers pay. And so in that sense, I don't think that the natural instinct is to rip you off. But I do think that where the law doesn't force them to do something, they have a choice. Do I become a good global citizen and cut my emissions even though no law requires me to do that? Even though it costs me money? even though it probably means I cannot spend that money on investment, I cannot create jobs, I cannot do all these nice things because I care about the environment. So do you want that kind of calculation to be done by the corporations? Or do you want the corporation to say, I have to obey the law, the emission standard is thus and such, I can't violate it. And maybe I go a little below that just to stay on the right side of the law in case you know the law changes. So in these two situations, I think it's better that we have the latter, where you don't leave it to the good intentions of the corporation. But the corporation sort of has to stay within the law. Now, that is not to say there aren't places where corporations have to make judgments. But you don't want everything to be a judgment call. You want as little as possible to be a judgment call in the sense of where society really cares about something. Well, make it a law.
1: So when we talk about a sustainable world and its impact, we talk about people, the profit and the planet, right? The triple bottom line. So, for instance, if we have, I'm just thinking of some law, the minimum wage law. So if we increase minimum wage, there are people who will say that it will cause inflation. You know, so what do you tell them? The businesses will have to pay more. And we already have, what, 8.5% inflation right now in the United States.
0: Every decision has some winners and losers typically, right? And you have to make choices. And if you increase the minimum wage, you're saying as a society, there are some people who have relatively weak bargaining power. And I want to protect them by setting a minimum. At the same time, you must recognize that this has some costs, that, uh, you know, you're increasing the cost of labor to some corporations. It's not cost-free. And that those corporations will either pass it on in higher prices, that is your inflation you're talking about, or some of them might find that, oh, this has become too expensive for me to run this particular franchise or to run this particular restaurant, and I'll close it down because it's just too expensive. Now, everybody wants to point to studies, and there are studies which find that, you know, increase the minimum wage, there's no short-term effect. In fact, it may increase business, and that's possible. But it doesn't happen in every circumstance. You know, the notion that choices don't have consequences and we can have everything and be happy... I think is a recipe for La La Land. This is where, for example, when the corporations in their business roundtable statement in 2019 said we care about everybody, we're gonna do good to everybody. That's a nonsense statement. It's a completely vacuous statement. You can never do good to everybody if you're running a serious business. You have to make choices. Sometimes it is for the shareholder versus the employee. sometimes for the employee versus the shareholder. Think about Google. You know, there was project at the Defense Department, which basically was about artificial intelligence for drones in devising targets for military users, right? And a bunch of Google employees said, no, no, we think this is terrible. We're not going to work on this. And Google at that time just dropped the project. It said, OK, our employees are more important than the bottom line because they contribute to a larger bottom line in all the other stuff we're doing. So they dropped the Department of Defense project. And so that's an example where a corporation has to make a tough choice. It can't be nice to both the Department of Defense, which is an important customer, its employees, an important stakeholder, as well as shareholders. It's making choices. It's probably saying, in the interest of maintaining the sustainability of the company, I have to emphasize my employees. And that is going to be good for the long run bottom line. But the Department of Defense gets hurt in the short run.
1: So you served as the governor of the Reserve Bank of India and as a banker I have to ask you a few questions.
0: Well I'm more of a bank regulator than a banker though I did work in a bank once upon a time but yes happy to answer the question.
1: So there are these neobanks and they seem to be disrupting the banking system. They are working I want to say under the regulators radar because one of our guests Ernan, the founder's name was ram palaniappan what he said is that the regulations for now work for the banks not for the customers as the neo banks come how will the banking environment change to help more people get fair credit grow their credit fairly not be predated by the banks how will at work?
0: It's a great question. I mean, when you say banks, I presume you mean the kind of entities that use fintech, that use a lot of data, that use automated structures and so on.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: I think they're very valuable competition to the banks because they are using data that banks never used, never collected. Maybe don't even know some banks how to collect that data as a result are able to make better credit decisions. If I know that you pay your utility bills on time every month, I have a greater sense of confidence in you. If I know your friends are all people who pay their bills, I have a greater sense of confidence in you. These entities use a lot of data that typically the state-old banks didn't use, and that has uh, expanded the possibility of credit. Now, one has to be a little careful In some situations, what would be ideal is combining the savvy of the banks, they know lending had been through downturns, they know what happens then, with the optimism and the technical skills of the fintech companies. Sometimes fintech companies do things which no banker would, but no banker would for good reason. And then the fintech company finds it's made massive losses because it's subjected itself to you know basically ripoffs. So they do bring a new facet. It is not to say that the old problems don't emerge with some of them also. I mean, as you know, the Chinese government has been going after Ant Financial, the fintech arm of Alibaba. And uh, part of what the Chinese government is saying is you're following monopolistic practices you are not so much predating on your customer but you're monopolizing the data you're not giving it to the state-owned banks and as a result you're squeezing the customer with excessive rates and so on a higher rates than would be possible if you you know, allowed for fair, free, and fair competition. And financial is basically saying it's the data we collected; those guys didn't collect the data. Now you're telling us to give the data to everyone. But you see the challenge that you can be really good as a fintech company, but the incentive to make money, which we talked about earlier in the program, doesn't go away. And therefore, regulators have to be aware that even though this opens up possibility of bringing in a whole lot of people who were excluded earlier you have to be careful because these people who are excluded are also vulnerable to predation, to, you know, monopolistic practices and so on. So just the fact that they've got access doesn't necessarily mean that they'll never be ripped off. Now, you might say getting access and being ripped off a little is better than having no access at all. And that may well be true, but there may be a better solution than just letting them run right either.
1: So from banking, let's move on to the environment. That is in everybody's mind because of COP26, the goals people are setting up for becoming net zero, 2050, 2060. I know you're a macroeconomist, right? But how do people at the micro level do things to impact that change?
0: I think we all have... A role to play to say somebody else is going to do it for us minimizes the involvement of people in society. And so I think we should all be cognizant that uh, we have to play that role. As you well know, growing up in India, we were often sort of trained to economize. We used to use paper bags made out of newspapers. We used to try and use both sides of a copybook. use the cover, use the backside, use every side. And, you know, clothes were handed down within the family from, I remember wearing my uncle's trousers. Because they were 30 years later, they were back in style. They were, <laughs> they were narrow legs. But these are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, you did. And I think we need to embrace that old philosophy of being careful on consumption. As uh, I think former finance minister in, in India, uh, Yashwant sinha used to say, if the whole world consumed at the rate of a suburban American household, there would be no planet left. Just imagine the Indian household consuming at this rate. I mean, the you simply do not have sustainability. If we are to create space for the poorer countries in the world to be able to consume more, richer countries have to tighten their belt somewhat. So that's the personal effort. You cannot sort of preach conservation, etc., while having a year round heated swimming pool. You have to ask what the cost of that. Is. I mean, no matter whether you buy carbon credits for that or not, you have to think about your own lifestyle. That said, I think there is a important role for getting the incentives right globally. This is where, I mean, most economists would say, let's impose a common carbon tax around the world so that everybody sees the common cost of producing carbon and that would be the efficient thing to do the problem is the efficient thing is the unfair thing if you think about the carbon that's already out there in the atmosphere a lot of that carbon has been put out by the developed countries and they still continue to put out more carbon for example the united states produces 16 tons of carbon per person per year tanzania produces 0.2 tons of carbon per person per year today and this is after all the conservation, etc., that has happened in advanced countries. Should Tanzania have the same responsibility for reducing its carbon as the United States should have?
1: That leads to my next question about just transition. I'm not sure if you've heard that terminology. And why should Tanzania now say, who's trying to grow, who's trying to develop, who's trying to catch up, with the United States in terms of their um, infrastructure, their building, their development, why should they say, okay, I'm going to stop at 0.2 tons, whereas the United States and Russia and many of the other countries, if we take what we call stock carbon, carbon that they have not going forward in the past, how much they have put out in the atmosphere, how is it fair to Tanzania?
0: It's certainly not. At the same time, it's inefficient for Tanzania to build coal plants today when you're scrapping coal plants in the United States or in, in Europe, right? But
1: often the technologies which are dismantled in one economy and disallowed goes to the people who are cannot afford the latest technology.
0: Yes, of course. But you don't want emissions being produced to the same quantity in Tanzania that you just avoided in the United States. That makes absolutely no sense, right? You close down the plant in the U.S., transported to Tanzania, and it up again there. It not only doesn't make sense, but all the workers in that plant in the U.S. will naturally feel aggrieved. You closed us down, but for what aim? You started it up in Tanzania. That makes no sense. I think what makes sense is for payments to take place from the high emitters to the low emitters. Here, we won't give you the coal plants, and we would hope that you won't, in a sense, build coal plants. But instead, we're going to make transfers to you, which allow you to go directly, for example, to solar plus battery or wind plus battery. And that way is win-win. But you develop in a green way so you don't have to scrap the stuff down the line. And we basically are paying you for it. So in that sense, you know, we're recognizing our responsibility. So I have a very simple scheme for that, which I actually this morning spoke to the finance ministers around the world trying to describe it. It's so simple. It's basically, let's set the world average of emissions per capita.
1: How would you set that?
0: You know that. It's 4.6 tons per person. That's the world average. If you're the U.S. emitting 16 tons, you're over-consuming carbon emissions, and therefore, you should pay a price for it because forget the past, forget the stock that you put out. Even if you let bygones be bygones, but charge for what people are emitting today because they're consuming that carbon stock that we have left before we reach the 1.5 degrees centigrade. So in a sense, when the U.S. puts out 16 tons, it is consuming Tanzania's stock. And so the US should pay Tanzania for the right to consume some of Tanzania's stock. What is the simple mechanism? If I'm consuming 16 tons, I'm consuming 11.4 tons over the world average. For every ton I consume more than the world average, I pay $10 per ton. 10 is not a large number given most carbon taxes are thought of as the right number is $75 per ton, but let's say 10. $10 per ton times 11.6 means $116 per person, times 320 people in the US, that's $38 billion. $38 billion is the amount the US pays into a global fund for over-consuming carbon relative to the rest of the world. And who gets it? A country like Tanzania, which is under-consuming, a country like Indonesia, which is under-consuming. So it acts like a carbon tax except it's a carbon reward to Tanzania, it's a carbon tax for the United States. The United States has to pay, Tanzania receives, but it receives less if it produces more carbon per capita. And that's why Tanzania has the same incentives to sale as the US, it's the efficient system, except it also takes into account fairness.
1: The incentive structure that you are proposing doesn't really incentivize America to move their energy production to Tanzania? Tanzania will say no because I would lose this credit.
0: Absolutely. That's exactly right. The US wants to consume less of carbon, so it wants to go green. But Tanzania also wants to consume less of carbon because it gets more if it consumes less of carbon. So Tanzania also wants to go green. You don't have this shifting of brown assets across the world. Everybody wants to go green. That's what we want, given the urgency of the climate situation.
1: You presented this paper today, and I just want to note that today is April 19th, 2022, and you presented it to the Coalition of Finance Ministers for Climate Action. That's right. So who will collect this fund? Who will be... I'm just trying to understand the mechanics. Will it be World Bank or...
0: Yeah, you need a small bureaucracy and I mean it in, not in the pejorative term, but in the, what you need is technocrats, right? Because you need first to measure the emissions. That's one thing we all, we don't do. We don't measure the true emissions that a country puts out carefully. Second, you need to make some adjustments. The system I suggested was really simple, but if you want to sort of penalize consumption rather than production, you have to also adjust for the fact that some countries import goods. Which are very carbon intensive. They import all their manufactured goods. So, some other country is getting the blame for the carbon that's embedded in those goods, even though the final consumption is by a country that imports goods. So, you have to adjust for the goods that are traded.
1: So, for instance, China's carbon output will be lower if you go towards the consumption part of it, because so many of the goods come to America.
0: Exactly. So you got it right on. China would be penalized 34, 35 billion if it was penalized for production. But if it is penalized for consumption, which it consumes far less, it would be more like 20 billion.
1: Talk about the scheme. So, does the scheme have a name? Would it be credits? Would it be incentives?
0: Well, $10 per ton is called the global carbon incentive. I didn't want to call it a tax because it's an incentive. And it's called the Global Carbon Reduction Incentive, Global Carbon Reduction Scheme. But see, the problem in these things is really, this goes back to an earlier conversation we had, which is when you leave things at the level of fuzziness, nobody accepts responsibility. So today, there is no responsibility on who's supposed to take actions on climate change? Who's responsible for paying into that 100 billion fund that developing countries were supposed to get starting 2020 to help in mitigation? That's 100 billion dollars per year. Nobody's talking about where that is. And generally, when they start talking about it, it is by repurposing all sorts of aid to do that. I think it is high time that we recognize who's responsible for putting this carbon out there and who continues to do it. And once you can fix responsibility, then it becomes clearer who has to take more action. Otherwise, basically, it's a time-honored moral that the polluter pays. Those who are emitting the most at this point should pay. Let the stock, don't even need to worry about that. If we could get the high emitters to pay today, they have the incentive to change. But you can also get the funds to help the poorer countries sort of adapt and mitigate. And that is where we should be going. That is what we should be thinking of.
1: You touch upon a point because we have America wants to be net zero by 2050, I believe, and China 2060. But what if the administrations change, politics and politicians change? How do we make your scheme agnostic to political parties and political motives?
0: How do you make that promise agnostic to political parties, the promise of becoming net zero by any date. Exactly. The answer is none of these. I mean, it's even less credible when a country makes it itself, because a country can always change its mind. What I'm trying to say is let's get the body of nations to come together and agree that this is really what is just, what is moral, what is sensible. And then there will be pressure from outside on countries. Yes, uh, really dogged administration can say, I don't believe in any of this, but uh, it will be going against the grain. And the only reason countries are making these kinds of pledges is because it plays well domestically. If there is a sense that this global scheme is going to bring everybody on board and it's going to limit the amount of free riders and it's going to work effectively with respect to developing countries, making them see the light also then I think there'll be a lot of domestic impulse in countries to push for this. And hopefully there will be more action. Right now, asking every country to set you know, its own limits and what it's willing to do is a fool's game. First, it's not even clear that we measure these things properly. What does net zero mean? And second, you said the US picked 2050, China picked 2060, India picked 2070. I mean, which one of us is going to be out there in 2050 to monitor this thing? Yes.
1: Yeah, so one of our guests who was a 23-year-old startup which worked on carbon capture, he's like, I don't believe a 70-year-old who says in 2070 we'll be net zero or 2050 for that matter. He's like, I'm the only person who's going to be around at that time.
0: Yeah, I think he's absolutely he or she is absolutely right that not a lot, whole lot of thought has gone into how we actually do this and how we measure movement towards this.
1: So how about some penalties? And I know we have to work with incentives. You don't want to call it a tax. How about penalties for non-compliance?
0: That's what the system is. That's what the system that I'm proposing is. It's not so much penalties. I don't want to call it penalties. But it is an incentive scheme. And those who are polluting the most or who are emitting the most should be incentivized to cut back. The problem is that, you know, everybody wants to let things be loose and informal because there's no pressure then, and they can respond to the pressure of the day, which is typically COVID, uh, the war in uh, in Ukraine. I mean, these are important, of course, but uh, the planet's existence is probably sort of an order of magnitude more important than the issue of the day.
1: So I have a question from a long-time listener who is the president of a European bank, and he wanted to, me to ask you, what is the single most important thing that private institutions can decide to focus on in the long term to contribute in a sustainable way in reducing environment of fragility? And can this be done only at the governmental level in the or quasi-governmental level, like the World Bank or the IBRD, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development? So, what are they not doing right now, the private institutions, and what can they do? Or does it need to be only at a government or quasi government level?
0: Look, I think private institutions can certainly experiment and innovate and try and find out ways of doing, of uh, reducing emissions, of producing in a more efficient, sustainable way. I think that certainly is well within their bailiwick and they should do as much of it as they can. I think it makes sense to be thinking 10, 15 years ahead and thinking of what the world will require then. And that typically will mean going greener in terms of what you do. And perhaps investing in greener production, in greener outlook before the world fully moves to it may be an important, indeed, bottom line expanding decision because you're making the changes when uh, nobody else is doing it and it's uh, in a sense an open area where in fact the costs of doing what you're doing may in fact be much lower so i think it's certainly it's a sort of win-win situation when you're looking ahead trying to see how norms how values will change in society and trying to adapt your business for that and that typically will mean going greener i would say do the things that you can contribute most effectively there is no point thumping on the table and uh, doing things in these, you know, go attend every sustainability forum there is with the with the World Bank and the IMF. And there are plenty of bureaucrats doing that. That's not the comparative advantage of uh, primary firms, except in trying to educate regulators, bureaucrats, et cetera, about what might be better ways to do it. But for that, you have to know yourself, which means the experimentation that I talked about. I would say, again, going back to the earlier theme we had, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Don't start trying to change regulation other than informing the regulator. Let the regulator decide what needs to be done. Otherwise, it becomes a a very clawing, crony capitalist structure. But try and do the things that you can do better, which is innovate. Think of more efficient ways of producing. Think of greener ways of producing. Try and reduce the kind of emissions that you are producing in many ways. And of course, I think uh, building a culture like that within your firm can also attract a whole lot of very talented people within the firm. It can be very useful, again, to the bottom line, but also to the sustainability of the business you're running.
1: With those actionable steps, I hope our listeners will listen and act on. Thank you so much, Dr. Raghuram Rajan, for coming on Mindful Businesses.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Iyer. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Mulligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pastricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.